Good morning. Oh, that was okay. Good morning. That's much better. If y'all just do it right the first time, you know. Um, uh, thanks. Uh, well, I don't know why I'm saying thanks, but I'm here today, and my name's Ryan Millard, and I'm one of the uh, pastors here. I'm actually the family pastor, and I get the honor of uh, closing up our mixtape series. Um, and I just, uh, it's been a great couple weeks. The worst part of this is that I have to follow the great job that Josh and Luther did, and um, that's kind of tough. But I am glad to be here uh, with you today, hanging out, talking about uh, my song. But before we jump into that, uh, just one quick announcement. I think, uh, Tommy, um, our softball team just finished their season, and they finished second place. I think we even have a trophy, right? Yeah, so you guys give it up for them, and, and that, that's really exciting. Um, and that, that's been a cool thing to watch them over the past few seasons really bond together as a team. And so I know that they all have a great time, but anyway, just wanted to let you know that we're really proud of them and really, really pumped about what's happened. Um, we are, so my song today is dare you to move. And, um, there's a particular line in this song that, uh, is why I want, why I chose this song, why I wanted to use this song. And it's, it's a dare you to move like tomorrow or like today never happened before. I dare you to move like today never happened before. And, and there's a part of that that it's, I don't know what the song actually uh, is saying. I didn't do any research. But what it says to me is what's important today. So um, <laughs> to me, I hear that and I think that there's some events that are so incredibly significant that you can't pretend they didn't happen. There's some events that are so incredibly important and so incredibly significant in your life that you can't move forward and act as though they didn't happen. And for me, a lot of times, I think that one of the hardest things for me to swallow about being a pastor and and viewing the church. And now when I say church, I want you to know I'm talking about the global church, not one church as a whole. I love one church. I love you guys. I think you rock. This isn't a session where I tell you that I don't love you. It's not it at all. When I speak of this, I'm speaking as about the global church. But there's a part of me that sees the global church, the church, and, and I see how we say that we've encountered the greatest love that there's ever been, but yet we don't move in such a way that would suggest that. See, there's something about significant events That sometimes you experience them and you just can't walk away the same. There's something about those events that you can't walk away from them and not change and do something significantly different in your life. And I think that when we encounter Jesus, when we encounter, when we become saved, when we enter into relationship with the Father. By accepting that Jesus died for us and paid the ultimate price. When we do that, we become a member of the church. And there's just something in me that can't settle for us not moving like that significant event took place. There's just something in me that can't be okay with the fact that we experience this. We say that we've experienced the greatest love the world has ever known, but we walk away indifferent. There's something about me that just can't be okay with that. And so you get to hear me talk about it for the next few minutes. Before we go any further, I need to make a clarification on my definition of movement. Um, Because there's Webster's version, and I'm going to show you that. um, That's going to be on the screen. Uh, Movement, a particular manner or style of moving. Got that right from dictionary.com right there. 
Here's Ryan's version of movement for the sake of today. The act or acts of showing the love of Christ through our lives. And so today when you hear me say movement, when you hear me say move, when you hear me ask you and, and, and challenge you to move, I want you to know that what I'm asking you is not to get up and uh, dance or get up and shake your fists or, or run. I'm asking you to uh, be a part of letting or just moving and becoming obsessed with movement so that Christ's love and Christ's light can be shown and shine through your life. Because I think that if the church would stand up and be the church, we would be amazed at what God would do through each and every one of us. We would be amazed at what God would do through the global sense of the church. And that's the challenge that I want to bring to you today. That's the thing I want to talk about and diagnose and unpack today, is that why is it that the church won't stand up and be the church? Because I've gone through a period of time of being honestly sort of bitter and sort of angry about it. And not one church, again, but the church globally. Why is it that we claim to have encountered this God that loves, but we walk away unchanged, indifferent, and, and not determined to make sure that His name is made big through our lives? Why is that? And so I kind of went through this like anger, bitterness thing. And then God kind of slowly started teaching me some stuff. And then this week, He did the great thing of just absolutely showing me something that wrecked me. So I really appreciate that because you guys need to hear this. I had to suffer all week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it was funnier up here. Um, so that's kind of what I want to talk about. That's what I want to dive into and, and process through with you guys. And I think that one of the things that God showed me through this whole process was that it's not that people are in and of themselves selfish or in and of themselves lazy or that they don't care or they don't want God to use them or they don't want to be used by God to do big things. I don't think that that's the problem. I wanted to think that was a problem, that was the problem, because that made it where uh, I could just be angry and be bitter and not have to do anything to fix the problem myself. But God kind of showed me that that's not it. It's that we don't understand our place in the church. We don't understand the significance of the statement, you are a part of the church. Because if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've become saved and engaged in that relationship, you are a part of the church. But there's something about that statement that should speak into our lives. There's something about that that should empower us and fire us up and excite us if I say to you, you're a part of the church. But because for so long the church has become a place and a time, a thing we do, and it's lost its meaning as the global meaning of we're a part of something significant, something ever so important that we can't possibly comprehend what God wants to do through, through us and through the church. And so I think the reason that we don't stand up and be the church, the reason we don't stand up and act as though we've experienced something that has changed us and has significantly impacted us, I think the reason for that isn't because we're in, in and of itself lazy and we don't care. It's that we don't understand our significance in the church, we view the church as a thing we do, a place we go, and not, not something that's significant, that holds the hope of the world. Because Jesus is the hope of the world, right? Jesus Christ dying for us and repairing and bridging the gap between us and God is the hope of the world. And so we as the church are a part of something that is the hope of the world. Because through our lives, Jesus' name can be made big 
people can see not us, but Jesus through us. And we as a church hold the hope of the world. We as the church are the hope of the world. And that is extremely and incredibly significant for us to understand before we go another step. Because we've got to stop viewing the church as a place and a time and a thing. And we've got to start beginning to understand that the church is something, it's not something that we do. It's not something that we show up to, but it's who we are. The church isn't something that we partake in as we show up on a Sunday, we sit, we leave. The church is who we are. We're a part of something significant, something life-changing, something world-shattering. We're a part of something that could change the entire world if through us we would stand up, be the church, and stop being so consumed with where we are, what we're listening to, you know, the place, the time, the thing, and be more concerned with the hope that we have. And so that's what I want to kind of show you today, because here's the here's the bottom line. Okay, I am just young enough and just naive enough and just stupid enough to believe that God can use the church to change the world. I'm just naive enough. I'm just silly enough to believe. That God can use the church to change the world. I'm just naive enough to believe that God can use the church to stand up and, and figure out a way to cure something as big as AIDS. I'm just crazy enough to think that God is big enough to use the church to stop world hunger. I'm just crazy enough to believe that God is big enough to use the church To put a stop to something like welfare because we stand up and we be the church and we reach out to those who nobody else reaches out to. We fight for those who nobody fights for. We stand in the gap for people that don't have anybody to intercede on their behalf and we become the church. I really believe that God can use the church to change the world. And I think, I think Jesus believed that too. So I'm going to show you how. It's my belief that the church is the hope of the world. Church is the hope of the world. Not that we replace Jesus or that we become Jesus, but that we know Jesus and through our lives people see a hope that they can't describe. And people grab onto something that they see in us because they see the light of Jesus shining through us. The church is the hope of the world because we have the hope of the world. And you have to understand how incredibly significant your place in that is. See, I think if I was to get up here and tell you, hey, I am an executive at Apple. Because I would love to be an executive at Apple. That would automatically tell you some things about me. Number one, you would probably, if it was me and I heard that, I would automatically assume, I bet he's got Apple everything. Which makes me jealous. He probably has like an, an Apple toilet. It probably talks to him. But if I say, hey, I'm a part, I'm an executive for Apple, that'll tell you some things about me. You'll probably think I'm at least somewhat good at my job because Steve Jobs just doesn't promote everyone. You would probably think that I have some sort of significance and sway inside of my organization. If I was an executive. If I said to you, hey, I'm an executive at Pixar Films or DreamWorks Films. That would probably say something to you about who I am. 
you would probably think to yourself, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty significant. Even better, let me flip it. If you were a part, if you were an executive in a big organization like that, Apple, DreamWorks, you know, uh, whatever it may be. If you were that, you would probably lay your head down at night and think to yourself and have the calm and the knowing that you are a part of an organization that has cultural influence. You are a part of an organization that has the, uh, the ability to influence culture and to change the way people see things. You would probably know that you're a part of something bigger than yourself. Something that is more than just you. Something that is more than just what you want, what your, little, your little bubble. But it's something bigger than you. And my, my feeling on that is that I should be able to tell you that you are a part of the church and you feel the same way. You feel even more so. I should be able to say that you are a part of the church and you know that you're a part of something so incredibly significant, so incredibly important, that when you lay your head down at night, you know that God is using you as a part of the church to fulfill His mission and His plan for for the world. Like, there's something incredibly significant about that. And because we've dumbed church down to something we do and a place we go, and we've taken it away from who we are, it changes it, and it dumbs it down, and it keeps us from really engaging and understanding that God wants us to use us to change the world. We have to understand now how significant it is to be a part of the church because the church is the hope of the world. So as much as I wanted to be angry for a long time, as much as I wanted to be irritated, as much as I wanted to stand up here and take 15 minutes and and yell and holler and tell you that we got to fix it, the real issue isn't, I don't think that you, you in and of yourself, I think the issue is that we don't understand our significance in the church because we've dumbed what church is down. Because the church is not an event, it's a movement. It's a movement. And we determine... How far it moves in our own lives. So we're going to look at Matthew. We're going to start in chapter 16. We're going to look at verse 13 first. And I want to show you how I think Jesus believes that the church is the hope of the world. So if you've got a Bible, you can go there. If you've got a smartphone, you're more than welcome to turn. Uh, go to our YouVersion, YouVersion app, excuse me, and, and uh, search for the One Church Live event. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, I want to stop right there. That Caesarea Philippi, we're going to come back to that. That's really important. Just put a little mental marker. Hey, he said that was important. Verse 14. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So Jesus is asking him, who do they say I am? What's people's perception of who I am? This is what they say. John the Baptist, Elijah, so on and so forth. Verse 15. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now, I have read this passage several times in my life. And I don't know what about this day when I read it that it grabbed onto me. That it helped me ask a question of, that doesn't make any sense. Because Jesus is the Son of God. He's been spending close to two years at this point with them. Of course they know He's the Son of God. But He says, no human being has told you that. 
You got this from the Father. You got this from God. And so that didn't make any sense to me. So I started tracking. Well, then let's jump down to verse 20 real quick because this is kind of key too. Um, We're going to come back to the middle, but verse 20, let's put it up there. Uh, Then he sternly warned his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. So I've got those first verses and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Of course they know. What is Jesus saying there? And then I got the last one where he says, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. So did a little research and I found something out that interests me greatly. And it is that until that point, until that moment, Jesus had never said the words or admitted to being the son of God. Until that moment, until that point, he had never admitted to being the son of God. Now, that says a couple things to me, and there's a couple of like, really hard reasons to unpack of why that is. And so I'm not going to take the time to do that. I'm going to unpack two of them. One of them being because um, he needed... Because of who Jesus was, because he was a son of God, because he lived in authority and he spoke in authority, if he would have said that, it would have, it would have done something. It would have created something. And so because he had to be a lamb going to the slaughter, he kind of had to hold on back, back on that. And the other part of that was that Jesus was trying to teach us something through his life that was really, really important. And it was, and the reason that he tells Peter this is because he's saying, Peter, I've never told you I'm the son of God. I've only told you I'm the son of man, which really means, and what he's saying in that is that he's a sacrifice for all men. So he's basically just clarifying when he says that, that I came to die for all people, not just some, not just these people, not just these people, but I came to die for all people. I'm the son of man completely. So that's what he's referring to. I'm coming. I'm going to die for you. But he never says, he never goes and says, I'm the son of God until this point. And I think that he's trying to convey something to Peter and convey something to us through his life, which is it's not so much important about what you say you are as it is about who you actually are. He's, he's letting them know that you know who I am because of what you've seen through me. You know who I am because of what you've seen in me and through me and how I live. You know who I am because of the things you've seen me do and the way you've seen me live. Not the things you've heard me say, not the things you've heard me claim, But the things you've actually seen me do, the things, the way you've seen me live. And I think the message there is really important. Number one, it's really not important who you say you are. It's important who you are. And the second thing is, is it's the way that we live as the church. It's the way we live as individuals that is going to convey to people what we believe and who we serve. See, Jesus didn't come down screaming to everybody, I'm the son of God. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of God. He very rarely says it. Because he wanted people to know that it's about who you are, not what you say you are. It's who you are that will really show the light of Christ and the light of God through you, not what you say you are. And so he's making, he's bridging a gap for us of what you say you are is great, but who you really are is what's going to matter, and it's what's going to affect life change in the people around you. What you say you are is fine, but the things you really do... The way you really love people that nobody wants to love. The, really, the way you really just forgive when it doesn't really make any sense. The way your life just doesn't make any sense because you constantly serve and serve and serve and give of yourself. The way you do that stuff, that's going to show people who you are, who you serve, what you believe. More than what you say. So Jesus is bridging a really important gap for us there. Really important gap. And I think that the reason... Peter knew who Jesus was because Jesus was obsessed with movement. 
he was obsessed with making sure that God's light was shining through him. He gave of his life completely. He gave of his life completely to travel around and heal those nobody wanted to go near. To tell the lepers that they could be fixed and that they were worthy and that God did still love them. To, take the, to go to the lady at the well and tell her, hey, you don't have to live this way anymore. I, I, I want to empower you to live a better life. To go to the people that were sick and hurting and go to them and love them and heal them. To raise the dead to life. He came to show who he was by what he did, not by what he says. Jesus was obsessed with movement. And it's my firm belief that our, our movement reveals the hope of the world. Our movement as a church, our movement as a people, our movement as individuals is what will inevitably reveal the hope of the world. If we get ourselves out of the way and we stop worrying about what we want and what we need and we start thinking about how can God use me in this situation? What can I do to glorify God here? How can I be used by God here? If we get out of our way and we allow that to happen, our movement will reveal the hope of the Lord because people will see not by what we say, but who we are, who we serve, and who we love. Jesus was obsessed with movement. Let's read on. He then tells Peter something really interesting. I'm actually going to read it from the screen. Now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you lock on earth will be locked in heaven, and whatever you open on earth will be opened in heaven. So he goes, he's telling Peter, okay, You know, I want you to be clear. You didn't hear that I'm the son of God for me. You saw it in me and through me. And then he tells him, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, I always, always, always thought that this meant that we're going to, you know, basically that heaven ends up winning. That God is going to be victorious. That when Jesus comes back and takes us to heaven, when that happens, when that occurs, I just always thought that meant good versus evil, good's going to win, God's going to prevail. That's just, that's how I viewed it, that's how I processed it. And then I kind of ran into some stuff and, and it challenged what I thought. And so I'm going to kind of share it with you. I want to show you a picture. Remember a minute ago, I said we were in, they were in Caesarea Philippi. I, I've said that so many times now. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but Caesarea Philippi is what it'll be for the rest of the day. And, um, that is, that's that, that's Caesarea Philippi right there. That's where Jesus was. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this place that we're looking at this rock. It's this massive mountain, this rock. You can't really tell, but there's like a, a waterfall uh, on the other side of those trees. It's, it's a beautiful place. But what this used to be in Jesus' time was the place where people would come to worship their false gods, their pagan gods. It's where people would come to worship kings and kingdoms and, and it would, where they would come to the God of whatever and whoever and all that stuff. It's where they would come to worship them and the rulers and all that fun stuff, right? And so that's what that place is. And he's standing outside of that and he makes a really interesting plot, uh, statement to Peter and he says... Peter, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, some of your versions might say the gates of hell might not, will not prevail against it. But if you go back, and I hate to get all specific, but if you read it in the Greek, there's a different translation right here for Hades or hell than there is in any, uh, in any of the other times that hell is used, which isn't that many times, I might add. But in the other times where it's used, it's a different translation. Now, I'm not a big translation geek. I don't know how to read uh, Greek. I'm just glad that it's in English now. So, um, but I, I do know that that is definitely the case. That that's there. And I always just didn't think much of it. I just kind of skimmed over it and, and didn't really pay any attention to it. But it's, I think what's happening is it's because Jesus is being specific to where he is, not to an eternal place. 
And so in this moment, because this is the only time it's different. And so in this moment, he's saying, the gates of Hades shall not prevail. And he said, and so he's telling Peter, I'm not going to build my church upon this rock. I'm not going to build it upon something temporary. I'm not going to build it upon something that will eventually become a memorial and a relic and you can take tours of it. I'm not going to build it upon that. I'm going to build my church upon you, Peter. I'm going to build my church upon the fact that people can see hope in you. And that's really, really significant and important and a huge thought in our lives because Jesus is stacking, just picture him standing with his gate, I mean with his back to this gate, to, because that hole right there is referred to as the gate of Hades. That little opening right there is referred to as the gate of Hades. And so he's standing in Caesarea Philippi, right in front of the gate of Hades. And he's saying, this is where everybody comes. This is where everybody comes to worship their pagan gods and to do all this other stuff. This is where they come for that. But I'm telling you right now that that place will eventually be relatively insignificant. People won't come there to worship that anymore. I'm not going to build my church on a rock. I'm not going to engrave something on the stones or on the rock. If you look carefully, you can see a couple places where there are engravings or there's places where they could put a monument. He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to partake in that. I'm going to build my church upon the rock that is you. I'm going to build my church, which is the hope of the world, on you and the fact that people will be able to see through your life who I really am. Because he tells him, hey, you didn't hear that from me. You saw that I was the son of God through how I lived. And upon you, I'm going to build the rock that is my church. Upon the fact that you have the same power to go out and affect life-changing people, not by what you say, but by who you actually are, I'm going to build my my church upon that. I'm going to build my church upon that rock. And the gates of Hades won't prevail. That one day will be insignificant. That one day we won't even know the names of the people in there. One day we won't even know what's going on inside of that little, inside of that little place. But my church will go on forever. And I'm going to use the people in my church and the church globally to change the world. That's an incredible thought. I'm really not like screaming and jumping up and down like a little girl because I'm trying to not freak you out. But that really, really excites me. That we are the rock in which Jesus wants to build his church upon because we have the hope through our lives of who Jesus really is and what he really wants to accomplish on this earth. That's an incredible thought. He doesn't want to build it on something temporary, but he wants to use us in our lives to affect life change in the world because we are a part of something so incredibly significant. Not just a rock, not just a mountain, not just something that would fall away. But we are part of something incredibly significant because we are the church, the hope of the world. And through our movement, through our movement, through us making Christ's name big in our lives, the hope of the world is made. The hope of the world is revealed. Our movement reveals the hope of the world. That's a beautiful, incredible thought. So what do we do with it? Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. What do we do with that? Because it's tough. Like, it's a tough thought, right? And it sounds cute and it sounds fun. And thanks, Ryan. That was a lot of fun. But what am I supposed to do with that? Hopefully, I'm going to help you. If not, sorry. (laughs) I'm going to make a weird transition into a story. Um, Wow, about a year ago, maybe less than, my wife had some people over to our house. They were actually, they're in our small group. They're mutual friends. We, we love them. Um, but they were coming over to eat with us. And then Jennifer had, Jennifer's a photographer and she had done some of their pictures. And so she was going to show them the pictures, all that good stuff, right? And kind of, you know, try to sell them. I don't know what happens in those moments. I just let her handle it. But her screen on her computer was broken. 
So she asked if she could use my Mac. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's cool. So I'm getting it set up for her because I'm really, really anal about my Mac. And I don't like anybody touching my Mac ever because you just don't need to. Um, and because it's mine. And, and Jesus doesn't say I have to share that. So, um, <laughs> so I, I'm really particular about my Mac. I, I love my Mac a lot. It's very special to my heart. You know, most days it's, you know, uh, God, wife, kids, Mac. Uh, if my kids are bad, it's God, wife, Mac, kids. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Last service, they were like, that's terrible. Like, it's a joke. Um, so, but I'll let her use my Mac. And so she's getting it open up, and, and we have finished eating. Now, I need to let you know that we are straight-up rednecks at the Millard House, okay? And we always have two things, no matter what, in our house. You walk in, it's guaranteed. Either we have gone broke if we don't have them, or something terrible has happened. It's a travesty. But we always have mac and cheese and Kool-Aid, okay? It is just, it's, it's in the DNA of who we are. We keep Kool-Aid in the house. I love Kool-Aid. I believe it's the nectar of the Lord. And, and so I am a fan of it and we keep, I mean, it's like, like if I walk home, if I come in and there's not a picture of Kool-Aid, I'm confused. I'm like, Hey, where's the Kool-Aid? It's not in the fridge. Like they put it in the cabinet or something because that just doesn't make any sense. And so we've always, always got, got Kool-Aid. Now my wife at this point was pregnant and she was pregnant, pregnant, but my wife does this thing when she's pregnant where she constantly chews ice which is, it's good that it's only when she's pregnant, because if it had continued, I would have killed her. Because I spend nine months hearing, and it makes me insane. I can't really describe to you how it just drives me crazy. And so, but I deal with it because she's pregnant and I'm not. So, just part of being a a dude. So, she just, but not, and just constantly, and so I'm really bad about the ice trays, right? I'm a typical dude. I empty the ice tray, I throw it to the side. I'm done. I got the stuff out of it. And that makes her say really terrible things to me sometimes. Um, But we've got, we didn't, I didn't, I emptied the ice trays, I didn't fill it back up. So, the the long and short of this is, everybody had some Kool-Aid, because the people at our house love Jesus, and they love Kool-Aid too. So, we all had Kool-Aid. Now, they were, she was going through, and she was showing them the, the stuff, and I was like, well, I'm thirsty, so I'm going to get some more Kool-Aid. And so I asked the guy that was there, I was like, you want some more Kool-Aid? He was like, yeah. And so, who doesn't? And so I got him some, and then, so I come, I just brought the pic, the picture, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the stuff of Kool-Aid, I brought it here, okay? I brought it into the dining room. And my wife is holding her cup kind of like so, right? And so, now, in our house, we're not as mannered as we should be, so normally that means fill it up, uh, because it's empty, you know, fill it up. And so I was thinking that's what she wanted. That's what she needed was me to fill her cup up. So I fill the guests up, and then I fill mine up, and then I'm going to fill hers up. Well, she had a couple of little, and I tried to keep, keep it going, but she had, they were even smaller than this. She had a couple of little tiny pieces of ice in there that she was gnawing on. Now, I didn't know I didn't pay any attention. It's nine months of ice gnawing. I finally am just starting to block the sound out of my, my, my life. And so I go and I pour, and I go to pour her some Kool-Aid. And at this point, you remember how I talked about my Mac at the beginning? It's because her cup was over my Mac that I love. And so, now I don't know why. I still don't know why. But when I went to pour the Kool-Aid, she saw that it was hitting her ice. And so she did this. Who does that? Who moves the cup? In mid-poor. I've never been anywhere in my life where I didn't want any more tea and I just moved the cup. 
and then looked at the waitress like, face, what now? Like, who does that? Who moves the cup? You don't move a cup in mid-pour. You deal with it. You suck it up. You are now owner of that liquid. Who moves the cup? Come on. I'm like, are you serious? That's bad enough if it's just a table. But that was my Mac, and they just poured Kool-Aid on my Mac. Who does that? Who moves the cup? I, never in the history of the world have I even heard a story that resembles, yeah, somebody was boring me a drink, dude. I didn't want it, so I just moved it. I would have been like, you're an idiot. Who does that? Who moves the cup? My wife. She moves it. Well, it's over my Mac. I'm doing better with it. I'm not near as mad. Um, so... So now, luckily for her, there was two things that played, because I have a tendency with my electronics. Because, listen, uh, I'm not, like, getting making enough to be rich here. So, you know, when we get an electronic, I treasure it because I'm, I'm an electronic fiend. And so I have a tendency to flip off the handle a little bit, like if something, like the kids lost the back to my PlayStation remote, and you would have thought, like, somebody burned the house down once. And so, like, I just, it's, I don't have much money, and so when I buy things, I want it to stay in decent shape. I'm just kind of a freak about it. So I kind of tend to fly off the handle in a healthy way, of course, when that happens. And so when anything hurts my electronics, so luckily for her, my small, the people from my small group were there. And so because of that, I didn't cuss near as much as, no, I'm just kidding. Um, and so I, I, but I didn't, I kept it calm. And because I was so concerned with the Mac, like she didn't even exist to me at the moment. I'm like, Oh my God, there's Kool-Aid on my back. And because I'm pretty quick reflexed, I know it doesn't look like it from being a fat guy, but um, I'm pretty quick reflexed. And the, the thing was almost empty. So I had the opportunity to like get it before it went all over my Mac. And so I'm like drying it off and I'm like, done, and I'm blowing on it and I'm putting it in front of a fan. I'm hitting her in the head with it. And um, that's a joke. I didn't do that. But I'm, you know, I'm freaking out. So I get it all cooled off and, and I'm like, okay, it's still working. And she goes to touch. I'm like, don't touch that. Don't touch that. Who moves the cop? And I mean, that's kind of where I'm at, you know, and so I get it dried off. I get it taken care of and no, no harm, no foul, except every once in a while, I'll just look at her and go, who moves, who moves the cup? Who, who does that? Okay. Still the only story in the history of the universe I have ever heard of someone doing that. And it wasn't supposed to be funny or something because she wasn't, she wouldn't have tried to be funny like that. And so it's a good thing that it all worked because, uh, you know, that it kept working because I would have had to kill her and bury her body. If not, I'm not going to say I'm kidding. That's serious. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I got, you know, we got through that and it was okay and everything was fine. And, and my small group, uh, the people, the two people in my small group, the couple from my small group, they still laugh about how much I freaked out. Um, and I still, I looked at him and I was like, who does that? But anyway, and so that I'm going to make sort of a cheesy uh, comparison. Okay. Um, because I think that it has something really significant for our lives. And when we come to this idea of, of being a part of the church globally, because I've always wondered what holds us back. Like, what keeps us from engaging there? Number one, I do think that it's significantly because we don't understand how important it is, how important our role in the church is, how important it is that we are the church and the church is the hope of the world, how important it is that our movement can reveal the hope of the world. I do, I do think that. But the other part of it, I think, is sometimes we get so caught up in what it might cost us. See, Jennifer was moving the cup because there was two little pieces of ice that I could have swallowed in there. I wouldn't, and, but she wanted to chew them. She needed them. There wasn't any more ice. She freaked out. She moved the cup because she thought that the lemonade, the beautiful nectar from the Lord of Kool-Aid, was going to ruin her ice and, and make it melt away. And so she moves the cup. But I think sometimes in life we get so wrapped up in, in whatever our ice is. 
Whatever our insignificant thing is. Whether it's our things, our, our possessions, our money. Whether it's our relationships. Whether it's the stuff and the things we do that maybe we don't know if we should. Whether it's the hobby, the unhealthy hobbies. Whether it's the way we treat our wife, whatever, or our, our, our husband. Whatever it may be, we all have something so insignificant as ice. And I'm not sitting here telling you that your life is insignificant and the things you've worked hard for is insignificant. I'm telling you that on the grand scale of things compared to what we're called to do, which is to stand up and be the church to stand up and make a difference in this world and shine, uh, let Jesus' light shine through us. It is relatively insignificant. And so what ends up happening is we grab onto this so hard. We need our things. We need our stuff. We need our people. We need our relationships. We need whatever it is that God's trying to give us. That or We need whatever it is in place of whatever God's trying to give us. And so what happens is we kind of let it tilt and we get fired up because... Some, you know, ridiculous guy was up here screaming at us and we thought it was fun and we get out and we're excited. But then God goes to pour a little bit and we're like, whoa, whoa, messing with my ice. And so whereas I was so angry at my wife, I think I would like to ask most of you, who moves the cup? Who moves the cup? Because it's not necessarily that God's going to take away from you anything. See, I've always had the perception, and I've said from this stage within the last month, so you can tell that God's doing something in me, that if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a part of what he's called you to be, it'll cost you. But I've found that it's not that it'll cost you, it's that it gains you so much more than what you ever had before. Because we are a part of something so incredibly significant that we, God wants to use us to show the hope of the world to the world. And so it's not that we're losing. It's not that things are, we're going to lose anything. It's not that we're going to not have anything anymore. It's that God is going to pour into our cup and give us far more than we ever imagined and we ever dreamed of. And when we get to that place, then we'll look back and we'll say, you know, man, that ice was really insignificant. It didn't matter. It didn't matter in contrast to God calling us to be the church, to God calling us to stand up and be the church because there's just something in me that can't any longer be okay with just how it is and how it's, you know, we show up, we go home, there's nothing any different. Like, I want to be a part of a church. I don't want to be a part of a service. I don't, I mean, I do, I like that, but that's not why God called me here. That's not why I'm here. Like, it's not to just be a part of, you know, coming here and hanging out with you guys. Like, I want to be a part of a church, a church that is in, intentionally focused on movement, intentionally obsessed on movement and showing God's light through our lives, not by what we say, but who we really are. See, we're so consumed by our ice and our things and our stuff that God tries to pour in something so much more significant, so much more important, and we panic because all we see is what we view as so important is going away, so we move the cup. And if I was to sit here and tell you, hey, I got this opportunity for you, and you can be a part of something so incredibly significant, world-changing, guaranteed. You are going to be a part of a movement that will change everything. It's, it's, it's going to be the most incredible thing and journey of your life. Come on. If I was to say that, you would say, there's no way I would hold on to my ice for that. But what I'm telling you is that a lot of times... 
God's inviting us to be a part of something so incredibly significant, so incredibly important, something so much bigger than us, something that he wants to use us to do incredibly amazing things in and through our lives and in and through our church. He's calling us to that. And probably a lot of you will have to deal with the fact of whether or not to move your cup. Whether or not you'll be okay to let God use you and, and, and use your movement to reveal the hope of the world. Or whether you'll stay with your eyes. See, a lot of you would say, no, man, I'll, I'll be a part of the movement. Well, I'm inviting you to be a part of a movement. I'm not inviting you to show up. I'm not inviting you to put your hands in the air and really enjoy your prom songs to Jesus. I'm like inviting you to be a part of a movement that can change the world. I'm inviting you to use your movement to reveal the hope of the world to a lost and dying world. Because Jesus, who came for us, who died for us, who got up and beat death, he is the hope of the world. And we have that inside of us. We have that power inside of us to reveal it to the rest of the world. Our movement, who we are, not who we say we are, reveals the hope of the world. Nelson Mandela, probably a lot of you know him. I'm going to close with this. If you don't know him, he was very influential, influential excuse me, in Africa when it came to ending an apartheid. And uh, let me break down what that is. Um, it's a... Uh, I think I'm saying it right. I read it. It's a, maybe apartheid. I don't know, but it's apartheid. We're going to go with that. It's basically a racial thing where one racial group is, is persecuting and, and causing lots of pain for another racial group. And so in Africa at the time, there were 4 million African whites that were persecuting and making life miserable for 40 million African blacks. And Nelson Mandela one day just kind of raised his hand and stood up and said, yeah, I can't be okay with that. They were killing him and torturing him and hurting him and bringing pain to him. And, and Nelson just kind of stood up and said, I can't be okay with that anymore. I can't. I'm going to fight for these people. I'm going to intercede for these people. And so eventually he got arrested. He ended up going to jail for a significant amount of time. And before they were about to put him in jail, before he had just he had gotten arrested, he had been gone through a trial of his peers. He had, he had already been convicted. It was evident that he was going to go to jail. He was going to suffer. He was going to be beaten. Those jails aren't real, uh, real friendly over there. It had become very, very evident to him that the end was near and that he was about to go to jail and, and, and experience a really rough time in his life. And, and they asked him, Nelson, do you have anything you'd like to share? Any last words? And knowing what he was about to face, he said this. Ending an apartheid is a cause in which I will gladly invest every day for the rest of my life. So he was saying, ending this travesty, ending this pain, interceding for these people that nobody will intercede for, it is a cause in which I will gladly invest every day for the rest of my life. He goes, to go, he goes on. And a purpose... For which I am fully prepared to die. Ending an apartheid is a cause in which I will gladly invest every day for the rest of my life. And a purpose for which I am fully prepared to die. Now, one man's resolve. 
one man's determination. One man's just stand up and say, I won't be okay with this. Ended up changing a culture and changing a country forever. By the way, he did end in apartheid. Nelson Nelson Mandela doesn't love Jesus. He didn't believe what we just talked about, that his life is the hope of the world, that his movement is the hope of the world. But just based on his resolve and his determination, he changed the country. So I sit back and I think to myself that probably through the period of today, 500 people or so will have come through those doors. They will have sat in these seats. And I think to myself, if one man, based on pure resolve, based on pure desire and determination, can change a country, what can 500 people do when they have the power of the risen Jesus Christ in them, what can they do through the rest of the world to impact the world and to change the world? If one man's determination and resolve can greatly impact a country, what can 500 people do that have the power of Jesus Christ in their lives, the power of a Savior that died for them, who defeated death, got back up because he loved them so much, if they have that kind of power living in their body, what can they do to change the world. See, it's time that we don't, we, we quit playing around, we quit showing up, and it's time for us to stand up and be the church. It's time for us to stand up and be a people that are obsessed with movement, that are obsessed with letting God's light shine through our lives. It's time for the church to stand up. And I truly believe with all of my heart, with everything inside of me, that if the 500 people in this room decided to be obsessed with movement, that what God would do in Clarksville would just scratch the surface as to what God would do through those 500 people globally. So where do we go from here? We go right back to where we started. I dare you to move. I dare you to move. I dare you this week to move. I dare you to love somebody that you don't want to love and that doesn't have any love. I I dare you to fight for somebody that won't fight for themselves and can't fight for themselves. I dare you to forgive somebody that you don't want to forgive. I dare you to fight for your marriage even though you don't really want to and you feel like it's over. I dare you to let God use you in, in the lives of people around you to show how big and how great He is. I dare you, this week, today, I dare you to do something and and move. Love the unloved. Give grace to the people that don't have it. Show mercy. Do whatever. Go out. Take your family out. Serve the community. Sign up. Serve at one church. But just move. Just move. I dare you to move. Because God wants to use our picture of brokenness and how he brings it together as his story of redemption. And do you, then he'll use our movement to reveal the hope of the world. The hope of the world being Jesus Christ who died for us, got back up and said, I love you that much. And the call of the cross, the call of the empty grave, the call of that isn't so that you can just... oh. Accept and get into relationship, that's a huge part of it. But the call of that is Jesus saying, okay, I dare you to move. I dare you to go out and be used for something so much bigger than yourself. Because you are now a part of something incredibly significant. 
You are now a part of the hope of the world. And your movement has the ability to reveal the hope to a dying world. I dare you to move.